Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. He grew up playing for the North York Spartans and the Huskies. He went on to play at the University of Toronto, where he's a three-time provincial champion, a silver national medalist, which I think that record still stands today. We'll talk about that in a second. And he was also a two-time All-Star. He's competed at the McCovey Games as a player and assistant coach. And also as a coach, he's a provincial and national champion at the club level. He is the owner of Camp Robin Hood and co-owner of Camp Madawaska. I think everyone around the community knows him. Please welcome to the show, Howie Grossinger. Howie, thanks for doing this, man. Hey, Josh, thanks for the invite. This is a, this is a, a, a really nice opportunity, longtime listener. And so uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And yeah, just talking before the show here, we've had um, some Scarborough Solars on the show, but it's nice to see the other side of it. So just for context for our listeners, uh, there was an era in Ontario, we actually had to try out for club and there wasn't a club on every block, it felt like. So you coming through a really competitive era, but not only a competitive era within your own club, uh, making the team, but battling against some of those uh, Scarborough Solar guys. Uh, what was that like? What was your introduction to volleyball? And when did you learn that club volleyball was a thing? Well, like most people, um, it was a dedicated teacher at my middle school slash junior high in North York who created this buzz around volleyball and just got hooked into it because he was my homeroom teacher. And he's a legend in OVA circles. His name is Dan Kalinescu, who uh, for people of my vintage and older know Dan. And he was a real dedicated grassroots volleyball guy. And we created this great junior high um, program, and that morphed into all of us taking the the school experience into playing club, and that was my intro, and got hooked, and um, and then went on to play for the North York Huskies under Phil Brown, uh, who was uh, a really well known guy in the eighties, and um, and I think one of the things that I respect about Dan, even to this day is just he was one of those coaches who just knew his limitations in terms of what he could offer his athletes. He wasn't the kind of guy who needed to take everybody to 18U. We had a we had a like an East Coast national experience. Those were the days, Josh, when it was Bantam Midget Juvenile. Like that was like we're talking a long time ago. So I played Bantam and Midget uh, with Dan and then I went on to play with Phil and that's kind of where where my my volleyball passion and I think I really, it really got into my blood at, at that point for sure. But those Scarborough Solar guys, yeah, you know, I, I, um, I remember those guys well. We played against John Child, who's been a childhood friend of mine. We played soccer together. It was when Hernan was first, you know, getting uh, his feet wet into the Canadian volleyball scene, and so got to know him very early in my life. But uh, the Solar, the Solars were definitely. Um, the, you know, the club, we still had Toronto, Toronto West was on the scene. There were a lot of, a lot of really great groups at that time. Yeah, it was such a, an interesting era because I remember I coached a lot of years with uh, Robert Chung, Jeff's father, and he mentioned that Jeff didn't play club because uh, he tried out for the same team that I think George Lubacek and maybe Doug McBride and a couple other talented guys. So uh, I think Jeff is maybe one of the best volleyball players I've ever seen, uh, had the pleasure of playing in person, and he didn't make his own club team. So I thought that was amazing just how competitive the era was. So you mentioned you had a couple teachers that got you sparked there, but as you said, they're playing two age groups up because that's there wasn't a 14U, 15U, 16U. Like, was there ever a couple years where you're looking around being like, wow, this is this going to be really tough to make the squad. And then when you go to tournaments, it's going to be really tough to, to compete with these other teams. Well, it was a real battle uh, all the way through. And I think that, um, I think throughout the, the tryout process, we had this kind of unique thing where we were kind of homegrown though. Like I know the Spartans at the time 
was kind of the school team that morphed into club and we stuck together. But once I got into the Huskies thing, it was kind of the all the North York guys who played at junior high or in the high school system, like they all gravitated towards that program. There wasn't necessarily kind of the cross GTA border crossings that we see today. Uh, it just didn't exist. Uh, at one point, there was a consideration to play at the Solars, but it's sort of like I, st- I stuck, you know, I was the homegrown guy who lived in North York and played in North York. So it was kind of just regional in, in that sense. Um, back in the old North York, Scarborough, East York days. Um, but um, it was definitely competitive and, and and there was a lot of talent out there. It was really fun. I, I, that's the first time I ever got to see my friend John Kanjar play, who was a legend back in the day. We ended up being teammates and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that in the future. So it's really where I got sort of my formative kind of playing experience, but also you know the relationships that I built that you know are still hold up today, many years later. And what was the competition format like in terms of, uh, was it still one-day Saturday tournaments within the OVA? Uh, did you ever get in a van and go play in Rochester or these other tournaments? Like, what were some of the tournaments you guys were going to? It wasn't until later on, like I would say the juvenile years, which I guess is equivalent to 17U and 18U, that travel became a thing. Um, I do I do remember going to Peterborough for a tournament. They were all one-day tournaments, though. It was sort of the same format. The rubber floor at Scarborough College back in the day was the venue of choice. You know, we played a lot of tournaments in that venue, if I remember correctly. And with you, uh, eventually, before you made your mark on the camp industry, wanted to be a teacher first. Uh, was U of T always going to be the sites for you? Or like, what was uh, some of the, the schools you were looking at when you thought, man, I can play post-secondary and you started to apply and look around and talk to coaches? Yeah, it's so interesting. That era you know, it was so unlike what happens today. I, I think that it was really school first. I, I didn't know much about the university volleyball experience, to be honest with you. It was, um, I was kind of like homebound, like Toronto was going to be sort of where I went. Although interestingly enough, I, it's funny, I felt I made it on the volleyball scene when Wally Diba gave me free tickets to the Excalibur tournament. I felt like, like he was, he was, he was so different than Oris, my university coach. Wally had it was tuned in to the talent, and I remember getting a pair of tickets to come to each day of the Excalibur because back in the day, that tournament was you know really something else, and uh, I got a chance to play in that a few times. But um, yeah, I, I kind of feel like I was a 17, 18 year old kid who ended up getting Wally to notice me and gave me tickets and. I ended up going to U of T, but, but I was always homebound. My parents, you know, I didn't think, I was never considering like Western or Waterloo, which were programs that were of of some note back, back in the eighties for sure. And uh, actually Wally's name came up as we were talking before the show, Uh, you entering the the provincial team pathway. So uh, again, I don't want to sound like the old guy because the OVA list comes out and it seems like there's 90 kids on the provincial team and don't get me wrong. I see both sides of it. And I think it is good to expose that many athletes to good coaching and good high level training. But uh, uh, again, when you go back an era, man, it was competitive even to get that invite. And we were just talking that, uh, you know, it's funny. How did people communicate before emails? Well, you got a personal letter from Wally Diva inviting you to the program, right? I did. I think my mom still has it somewhere in her in her condo. Um, but I did get a typewritten letter from Wally. Hernan's name was on it, and I was invited to try out for the provincial team. It was um, it was held at Guelph, 
our, our good friend, Doug Dodd at the time, I didn't know Doug, but I, I've known him, you know, I obviously got to know him really well, but uh, we all kind of went to Guelph and that's where I, we really started to get to know each other. I remember, I remember meeting Mark Dunn for the very first time from North Bay. Who is this incredible athlete from North Bay that was coming down for a provincial team tryout? And I got to meet all these really great people from that era who really, and I mean, Mark went on to be a star at U of T and an Olympian, but um, on the beach, but it was a really great, it was a great experience and, and also felt, you know, really cool that I was invited to that camp for sure. And uh, to jump ahead to your days at U of T, because uh, I mean, it wasn't as accessible. Maybe you saw them play at the Excalibur, or maybe like you, you bugged your parents to take you to a game now and then. But when you're finally in the gym with them, what was it like uh, playing with some of the athletes that maybe you weren't familiar with, but now you're in Oris Gym and you're playing with uh, men at this point, right? Totally. It was, re- I remember it being very overwhelming. Um, you know, needless to say, my good friend Oris Stanko was not an elite recruiter by any stretch. He kind of, it was kind of, you come into my gym and I'll look at you. And if I think there's a spot, I'll give you a spot. It was really just very much, that's the way it went. However, the team itself had a great reputation. I mean, this is, I came in at an era just at the end of the Ed Drakeage years. They had just done very well at nationals that were held at York. And, but, you know, Paul Cox, Mark Dunn, John Spicer, who, you know, with someone I, I totally emulated and, and um, you know, came very close with in my U of T years as I became a setter, it was really daunting. I, I ended up being in the same year. The three recruits, the, the two guys that joined me that year were Edgar Lueg, who went up, who played for the junior ta- national team, and Peter Sora. Uh, Tom's dad, Peter and I, not only were in phys ed together, uh, we were uh, first-year players, rookies uh, on the U of T squad that year together. Amazing, amazing! And before I get sidetracked and we dive into the U of T stuff here, every once in a while I'll go with a friend and they'll tell me about Mark Dunn and how he used to just take over warm up. So, can you confirm these rumors? Was he just absolutely mashing balls and hitting warm up? Like, like in in gyms where it doesn't seem possible, was he hitting the roof? So my my favorite Mark Dunn story is when we played this classic Sherbrooke tournament every year. It was, uh, I believe, it, I think it was like a preseason tournament or it may have been over Christmas. But I remember John Spicer setting him like a back meter. It was this, it was somewhere between like a meter and a quick. And he hit it behind John and the ball bounced and went through, went into the next phase of the of the of the of the facility between the top of the curtain and the ceiling <laughs> so if you could imagine if you've been in Sherbrooke if you've been in that facility and for the listeners you know he wrecked the ball people were like in awe I'll never forget he did that and then he did it once at nationals I remember in Winnipeg in warm-up where he hit it like right onto the track as people were running in the Winnipeg gym, you could still like run laps and he would, you know, very consistently in warm up, hit that ball onto the track. So it's all true. I was there. Um, he's actually responsible for some of my stitches that I have above my eyebrow because back in the day before I wore contacts, I actually wore those sport goggles and he was known for hitting a phaser from the back row when he, when we set him in the back row and it rose on me when I was on D and, and, and forest 
said, Howie, I think you should go to the hospital and get some stitches. So thank goodness we were close. So uh, Mark, Mark, thanks to Mark. I have that, this little reminder here of a, a Mark Dunn phaser in a practice. Oh my goodness. So yes, the, the legends are true. He probably hit one of the heaviest totally balls true. we've ever seen. Um, so yes, I, I think Oris would self-admit this. And I think a lot of guys who have come through that program is, uh, wasn't the most over the top. I'm going to talk about rainbows and unicorns to recruit you. But when you were in the program, uh, my understanding is unbelievable communicator, very demanding, very competitive environment. So once you felt like you were on the squad, how did your relationship grow with Oris in terms of, you know, everything's got to be earned. You kind of know where you stand with him. He's a straight shooter. Like, how did you enjoy that style of coaching? Well, it's, it's interesting how that developed because, you know, Oris was, you know, in my first year, very committed to the starting group that was incredibly talented. And I just remember there being a moment where there wasn't a lot of talk of, you know, you know, we go through this phase today where athletes need to be, it needs to be outlined for them about the vision the coach has for their contribution and how I'm going to use you. And it's a totally appropriate way to engage your athlete and all that stuff. But back then it was I just came from a, you know, it, it was just an environment where you just constantly had to prove yourself to Oris. Was he a great communicator? For sure. Did he make you feel like you belonged? A hundred percent. But from where you fit into the overall tactical scheme of things, you were kind of always wondering. And I, and I, and I found myself quite frankly, like halfway through that first year, not knowing where I stood. And it was really one of the moments as a young athlete who was so used to being engaged and on the court all the time it was really hard to handle. And, you know, I, I remember my dad, my dad telling me over the Christmas break after first exams that he goes, I've met Oris, you got to stick with this. You know, this is, this is the guy you should be with. Cause I was really doubting myself if I really belonged. And I actually, it was at the end of that year. And back in those days, right. It was like um, serve scoring protocol. Right. So it was up to 15 and it was during the playoffs where he called my number to be a serve sub at, at one point. And I had I'd hardly played, but at some point he just looked down the bench and waved to me and said, come. And I got in a playoff match and it kind of, even those moments were just so gratifying, just given his style. And, and then just our relationship just, you know, totally blossomed after that year. And, and, you know, I just credit him with a lot of, style and the approaches and just you know just the people stuff that Oris is so good at and obviously every team he's worked with has his mark on it but i think he also lets his leaders uh contribute to the culture so i'm wondering if you could let us in behind the curtain about U of T because when we had uh Sleener on the show and when we had Binner one thing i admire about uh their U of T time is the the ability to have conflict and get after it in practice but josh basically said that if you were still mad at somebody the next day that's on you like you had to get over it where like if howie's trying to win the drill and he gets on me or we're battling through the net that that's not a personal thing that's him trying to win the drill and we could go out for dinner that night we would still be friends at class the next day like i think that's way easier said than done but it seems like a consistent thing that was happening on these u of t teams a hundred percent and i was i was the era that preceded Celine and binstock in fact Interesting story about Josh, who I've known forever. Um, I was a high school coach in York Region when uh, Paul Cheeseman and, and Josh were ripping it up at Richmond High in those years, and I was at Langstaff, and they, they, those were amazing years. And I remember doing my part because 
Forrest asked, you know, we, we wanted Josh to go to U of T. So I remember being a high school teacher, kind of just laying the foundation for Josh to maybe consider U of T, which was, which he went on to obviously do such amazing things. But, you know, I, I think about Boris' contribution, uh, you know, it's, I think he was the cynical Ted Lasso, if I could use that phrase, you know, he was the sarcastic Ted Lasso. He, he had this really uncanny way of get, getting everyone to believe in the gym with a style that didn't um, necessarily coddle anybody. And it just, it just, he, he promoted a, a healthy level of conflict and rubbing each other the wrong way to get the best out of each other. I don't know if it would necessarily fly in today's climate, but I look back at those days of, and I don't know how intentional he was with all that, or it was just the personality, but there was something about our gym that, you know, even, even our, our team that ended up with silver not as talented as some of the other teams. And I think we'll probably just touch on that a little bit, but what we did in the gym and the relationships he was able to build in a competitive practice environment, I think was the formula for why we succeeded the way we did. It was just exactly that we could practice. We went to our watering hole called the sticky wicket on, on Spadina, just South of Bloor. And no matter what happened in practice, it was kind of understood. We would go for some wings and, and hang out after practice. Yeah, and to, to bring up your three banners, so I was shocked because I've known Mike Sleen for a lot of years, but when we talked about it, I don't know why, but I just assumed, oh, you won five OUA championships. You must have been the favorite every year. And he was like, oh, gosh, no. Like, we, there, were, there was years we finished fourth, fifth, sixth in the standings. Like, we, we could switch it on and we won a game maybe we shouldn't have or we were always in battles or maybe this team was the favorite. So uh, I'm wondering with your three banners, did you ever feel like you guys were the favorites and you had something to prove or were you always battling? Like, was it just a competitive league across the board or maybe someone else was the favorite that year and you were able to upset them? It's really funny because I remember my first year, we were battling it out with York and Western. Western Jim Sage played for Western at that time. Like we just it went like we those were those teams were really strong. And I don't I don't think anything was a foregone conclusion in our league at that point. I mean there was there was there was decent parity. Um, I think we were emerging as you know given the talent we had. It was Paul Cox's last year. I think he was an All Canadian. He was just super talented. And I remember, I remember us, I believe we beat, we actually, I think we ended up beating Western. And then there was another time in our second year where we beat Waterloo and those teams were, I mean, Fred Coops was, I think on that team, uh, you know, played for Waterloo, if I remember correctly. So those teams were, were great. And I remember our third banner that I was part of was, was the year that we, we made it to the national final and we, we beat McMaster in our home gym in the final in five and it was the young bucks of Mac, like that team, that McMaster team, it was coached by Reg Miller and it had all those, those amazing young, I, I think the West side guys or Bronte beach guys or whatever it was back in the day in the early nineties. I, I can't remember the was name. Mike Chaluka maybe coming through at that time. Or? Mike Chaluka, Chip was on that team. He was, uh, I think he was, he might've been the rookie of the year in the, in the country that year. That team was awesome, and we beat them. Um, and Tim Tracy was on that on that on that team, and I and Tim's a coach at Madawaska, so every year we see each other and we kind of reminisce about that. But nothing was a foregone conclusion in our minds. Like we we battled throughout. I think all of them were were tough ones. You know, a little different than 
I think in the last, you know, in, in some years in the OUA where it's kind of a foregone conclusion in some, in some cases. And with uh, the, the silver at nationals, kind of set the scene for me and the listeners there. Up until that point, was Ontario competitive? Were they a metal threat? Or was it typically maybe what we see now and we've seen for generations that the, the national championship seems to run through Canada West? 100%. It was totally that. It was, it was, it was Canada West, namely Manitoba, Garth Pishke's team. And... Um, but it was uh, uh, like a, a smidgen of like Quebec, Laval, and Sherbrooke. Laval, Laval was the host of that um, of that tournament, and there were a whole bunch of upsets in that tournament. Um, there were three Ontario teams, if I remember correctly. It was us, Mac, and Waterloo, and it was upset after upset to start the tournament. Um, Sherbrooke, I think, upset. Calgary, Tom Elser's Calgary team, Jesse, Jesse's dad played again at the time that I played. Um, I think that uh, Waterloo had an upset and we played the four or five match against Dalhousie, which had a really strong team. Dalhousie and that era had some amazing athletes. They were always competitive. They did their thing in the East and then they would, they would really be Jody Holden played on that team. I don't know if you, you had Jody on the show, but Jody, Jody was an awesome player. And we, we, we ended up losing the first set of that quarterfinal, like 15-3, like 15-3 in that scoring system. And Orist, I think, just shook us and said, you guys are better than this. And we ended up beating them in five. Uh, there was legendary chirping in that match across the net, namely by our friend Edgar who was uh, just a, a, a superstar by the, at the end of his career, uh, as well as the beginning. And then we beat Sherbrooke in the semifinal. And then we played the vaunted Manitoba Bisons that had Steve Welch on it, Keith Sanheim, uh, Dale Iwanoshko, who that wonderful award is given to in the youth sports uh, end of season awards program. And I got to play against Dale. And these, these are all future national team players. And, um, I think the steam out of our train came out in that final and we lost three straight, but we were on TSN and we, our, our game was carried live on TSN, which was a big deal. And looking back, was it just fun to ride the wave? Like at any point, did you guys look around and be like, oh, I don't know if we should have won that one or did you pay attention to the rest of the bracket? Like, were, were you hyper aware of like what was happening on or is it just fun to look back and be like, yeah, there was a lot of weird matches that year. Yeah, we had a, a very... Um, at sometimes unwarranted confidence that we were world beaters when we weren't. And I think with every match, a combination of our coach and the personalities on this team, we all kind of just fed off each other and just said like, who's next kind of thing. And I think we just ended up coming, you know, from the McMaster OUA final to the quarter and the semi, you know, we were on a roll that we kind of felt we were invincible and, I think it's a, just a really great testament of how teams can ride momentum in ways that, you know, create the unexpected. And I think, I think that's a really, that's a really valuable lesson on, on how when teams are tight and guys care about each other, that you can do some pretty cool things. And uh, you already mentioned a few names here. So it looks like, uh, 
Edgar Luig was, was kind of the, the top dog. I think he was an All-Canadian that year. You said uh, you were the captain. But again, looking up and down the roster, there's still a, a lot of names here are still involved in our sporting contributing where uh, John Kanjar, you mentioned, uh, Jerry DiGiamalamo was on that squad, uh, Hiller Sora, who you mentioned. So is it cool just to kind of think back, but also just maybe you're at a beach tournament with your kids and you look around and be like, oh, there's so-and-so. Like, it seems like uh, this squad, the, the legacy lives on, not only because like you're Ontario's silver medal. I think Mac has a silver and so does Western, but nobody's won a gold from Ontario since your era. So you still have like the best record going. But like I said, the names just keep popping up where everybody still loves volleyball and is contributing to volleyball in their own way. I think it's one of the things that I think our, our generation of U of T players have this really great experience of, you know, giving back through our kids experience and beyond our kids playing days. So yes, Jerry and I remained really good friends uh, along with all those other names you mentioned. And Jerry and I coached together and Hiller's done such great things in the game. And although Peter didn't play in on that team, you know, Peter stayed involved in the games in different ways. And John Kanjar is doing some great stuff out in Milton. And there was just this thing about U of T people that I, I kind of am really proud of. Like there was a real, a real sense of giving back. Um, that it's really nice to see. And there's no doubt whether you're in a gym or at the beach at Ashbridge's, you know, every weekend was kind of a mini reunion of, and, and yes, we told the same stories to each other over and over again, because that's what we do. But the fact is, is that there were some really great, great people on that team who have gone on and given back in really great ways. And is it also cool to bring that up uh, when your kids got a little bit older? Because I think it, it's just so funny. I use this example a lot because to me, he's he's the man. But as soon as I heard that Marquise was sometimes Kayla's dad, I was like, no way. Marquise will always be Marquise. So it's just funny how like your your kids will change things. Is it just like a nice nod for you to be like, I, I have a national silver medal at the university level. Like that's a hard thing to accomplish. I, I, I've always been very proud of that accomplishment. And um, it's kind of cool because my son, Cole, uh, played for Western when they got their silver too. He had suffered uh, an unfortunate injury and he couldn't play the rest of that year, but Jim had him come out to the national tournament. So he was part of that group when they won the silver back, I guess in 2013, I think it was, or 14. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, I take a lot of pride in that. I think it's something to hang our hat. I mean, until the group that Dave Preston coached with, you know, Jory, and Steven was on that team and Danny that won that silver medal. That was, that was the first team after our 91 silver that won a silver. And that was whenever that was in 2014 or 15 or 16 or whenever that was. Um, so, yeah, so we held on to that for a while. That was, that was something we, we loved. We loved to know that we were connected with. And one thing you've gone on just to keep your competitive spirits, and obviously it's very important, uh, especially in the Jewish community, but playing at uh, the McCovey Games, was that something you've always wanted to do? Because I think you've been to three, right? Two as a player and once as an assistant coach. So uh, just tell me and the listeners, because obviously uh, I, I know like Binstock and Schachter and Nussbaum, like they, they've competed at this, but just in your own words, uh, how important is that for you to keep the competitive juices flying, but also just connect with the community? Well, it was very important. I, I, I didn't get an opportunity um, when I was, you know, younger to, to participate in that tournament. Uh, the Maccabee Games are, you know, often called the Jewish Olympics, a, a four-year gathering of a, an Olympic-style uh, program. 
Um, but volleyball, Jewish athletes, you know, playing volleyball wasn't a thing when I was growing up. I was kind of an anomaly. It wasn't something that people in the Jewish community gravitated towards, like you see in sort of the Eastern European communities of, you know, the Estonians, the Latvians, etc. It just wasn't a thing. The only other Jewish athlete that I played with was Paul Brownstein's son, Norman Brownstein. And Paul was the founder of Madawaska. So Norman and I played, but there were never opportunities. It wasn't until George Shermer sort of had his boys grow up in North York playing volleyball, JCC Blues, and all those experiences that George, who did play on a Maccabee team in the 70s, came to me, and I was already in my late 20s, early 30s, to say, how we had like to do this, can we build something, would you want to play? And that's when we got the young people involved, and I was kind of the elder statesman, and we got to play in two Maccabee games, uh, met a ton of great people. It was um, just a great experience. My, we had, you know, my wife, I left my wife in the middle of my summer running our summer camp and she had three kids and run a camp and she gave me permission to go play volleyball in Israel in July. And that's when I do most of my work. So she deserves a lot of credit, uh, but did that twice, played with some great people. Uh, George was with us for those two. And then as Cole finished his kind of club career, we got the opportunity to go back and I was an assistant to Brenda Willis and that team won, um, came, lost in the final to, I guess, the equivalent of the Israeli junior national team. And a lot of those guys went on to play NCAA or, or you know, in Europe. Um, but that was a great experience to, to, I learned a ton from Brenda through that process. But to see Sam Schachter on the court and not on the sand and Josh on the court, you know, all those guys who were the beach guys playing on the court again was pretty cool. Yeah, just uh, help me name drop a little bit because I think most of the starters, or if not the whole squad, was college university level guys. Like I think even Mac Robinson was in the middle. Uh, one of the Shermers was setting. Josh Shermer, I think, was setting. So, so no, uh, so Daniel Shermer and Cole Grossinger shared the setting duties. Cole was just going into Western that that following fall. That was the summer before he went to Western. Jacob Glantz was on that team who played, who was a libero at Queens. Aaron was there. Mac Robertson was there. Um, it was a great, great group of guys. And, and, um, they took Cole under his, under, under their wing and showed him a good time in Tel Aviv, I think. But it was, it was, uh, it was just a really, really great experience, but it was, a, it was a talented group. These are, you know, it, I, I would say the, the cross section of the, the guys on that roster all had really significant, you know, um, university experience. Uh, Matt Silver was on that team, who was from, from Calgary, and he played at Long Beach for a year. You know, like guys, guys who, who knew how to play. It was really good. Brenda, yeah, we put a, together a nice group. So after your, your playing days, you get into coaching. And, and I'm curious, uh, was Cole just so exposed to volleyball and obviously growing up around Camp Madawaska, was this something that, that he was pushing for? Were you pushing to get back into it? Like who, who made the first move in terms of you getting back in and spending all your weekends in a gym somewhere? Well, I, I think it kind of coincided with my departure from teaching. It, obviously, for me, coaching volleyball at the high school level was a real treat for me. And um, when I left teaching to be in the camp world full time, it definitely afforded me uh, some time in my schedule to look at getting the boys, uh, particularly Cole at that time, you know, interested and, you know, 
I'd like to think that he had a choice, but I'm not sure people would say he had much of a choice. Um, but there's definitely our involvement in, in Madawaska uh, back in around 2003, 2004, and having the kids young and, you know, seeing dad reconnect with his vol the volleyball community. I think it was kind of like by osmosis a little bit. And, and we got Cole involved in, in, uh, in volleyball quite early. And that's when I sort of said, let's see what, let's see where this takes us. It's actually funny, Josh, because it, one of the interesting stories is that I, Toronto West had uh, a program before I believe anybody that I remember having for kids under 11 to, or 12 to just go in a gym and learn skills and just, you know, get, get familiar with the game. And so I, I sought them out and, and I, I took, we lived in uh, Richmond Hill and went to Etobicoke. And who do I meet for the first time who signed his son up? Roman Coker brings Andrew Coker to that gym. And that's where my friendship, our friendship, our family's friendship with the Cokers began with Andrew, who was a year older than Cole, being introduced to organized volleyball in the same gym in Etobicoke. And uh, they went on to play their very first beach tournament together in Wasega Beach because Roman and I wanted to give them an experience. And they, I think they were 11 and 12 at the time and got beat up by some really talented 14-year-old Pac-Man guys or something. No, it's, it's amazing to hear those stories because when we had uh, Anthony uh, DiGeronimo on the show, excuse me, he mentioned his first beach tournament. Uh, he felt like he was angering the staff a lot because he was always getting called over the speaker system. And he's like, it wasn't my fault. Meanwhile, my dad's like pulling me over. Oh, you got to meet this guy. You got to meet this guy. And Anthony's like, I just want to go to my court. So the, when you kind of left the scene, I know you're still uh, coaching high school, but when you kind of left the scene and you started going to these beach tournaments, is it just such a joy to see the same names pop up and meet new people, would meet the same people over and over again? Like it, to me, a, a full day at Ashbridges just kind of shows how tight our community can be. Oh, a hundred percent. You know, I, I think my wife would joke, like we'd get to Ashbridges and she knows she lost me for a day because I was reconnecting with everybody and she'd have to remind me when the boys were playing or I had to, you know, stop a conversation because I had to catch up with someone or introduce the boys to someone who I had to convince was a legend back in his time or whatever, you know, like those types of things happen all the time. And um, it was a big part of our weekends when the, when the boys were playing beach. Uh, it was it was a it was a it was a reunion every weekend, which was fantastic. And with uh, Cole's experience, uh, I don't think there's maybe a, a way to know this in the moment. Well, when you look back, do you think like, oh, that was a pretty special experience? Because obviously Cole went on to achieve a lot in our sport and playing with guys like Steve Marr. Uh, Sergey Gorovsky, uh, Luke Wood would eventually join the team. I think Alex Duncan yep. Tebow was on the team uh, a little bit later yes. on. And, and that's just your squad. And you're playing against Andrew Coker, who you mentioned, and Reed May and, and Danny Demianenko is a special player. And there's just name after name and team after team where, uh, man, Cole was born in a pretty tough year in terms of volleyball players, right? He sure was. And he was a year younger than all those guys. So he was a 95 because Cole and Lucas Coleman are the same year. And so... Um, those guys grew up and, and the crush storm rivalry, I think in, in, in many ways was about as good a time for volleyball as I can. I was lucky to be part of uh, John and I, uh, May and I have you know grown to be good, uh, you know, evolved into really good friends. But boy, was it a competitive scene, crush and storm every weekend. And then you, you put a little smattering of Wayne Wilkins coaching Pac-Man at the time and those talented players. But I just, you know, the 
the, uh, the, the psychological warfare of John May and Howie Grossinger and all the players in between was, was quite, was quite entertaining for some people. And, um, but it was really a great time, you know, to be part of that. And, um, it, it just seemed like every weekend it was a, a battle against our two squads, uh, during the season. It was, it was a lot of fun. And not to skip over what Cole accomplished, but uh, obviously I want to give uh, Zane his credit here. So uh, I found Zane's career path uh, maybe similar, actually, because I found he was playing up a lot. And, and your guys were beating up on the teams above us where uh, I believe he's the same age as Tahid, but you guys were, were competing underneath. Uh, I mean, I got a chance to work with Tom Sora, but the Pac-Man guys had like Sharon and Tariq and all these guys. Like it seemed like their Danon was at Titans. Uh, I'm, I'm forgetting like dozens of people, but it was another really tough age group. And Zane was playing against older cats and holding his own. So uh, again, when you look around and be like, wow, that was another special age group. Like you just keep coming through the, these hot waves of uh, boys volleyball in Ontario. I, for, for me, I look back at that time as really special that my boys got to play with an incredible cross-section of talent that I think helped them love the game and, you know, um, develop at a, a rate and a level that allowed them to experience university volleyball, but also provincial team stuff, which was just really special. And I remember, you know, one of the things that my schedule doesn't permit me to do is to get involved in the TMO experience in the summer. I just, I'm not afforded the time to get involved like my friend, you know, Jerry does or Matt Harris get, got involved and even you. Um, so I got to, I got to coach in a regional game once, you know, the, the winter games. And I was the coach of the second region five team, which was made up of all the, the younger kids and some of the kids who are on the outside looking into the team that was made up of, Tahid and Shawan and and Danan and Tom Sora and some other really talented kids. And I remember Region 5 games in Midland and we beat that team in a round robin game. And I feel like that, like I've had a lot of nice, very rewarding moments, but I remember those kids feeling like if they did nothing else the rest of their volleyball career, they beat a team that Shawan and Danan was on. It was a really big de- deal when you're 15 and 16. I remember that year because uh, Alan was the head coach, but I was his sidekick That's along right. with Steve Kong. And uh, yeah, I'll tip my cap to you. So just for the listeners' context, we we found a team room and we kind of took it over in our own way where that was our routine and the guys knew where to meet. And we were almost treating it like a university program. Where, like, this is what time we play. This is what time we meet. We just and, and sure enough, when we go to play the other Region 5 team, which I think was to win the pool or it was definitely a, a meaningful big match for us. Uh, sure enough, we walk in there and there's you guys just hanging out in our room. And it was kind of like, sorry, guys, you can't reserve rooms. And it was just like, Al, I was just like, oh, I know what you're doing and I don't like it, but uh, we'll tip our cap and we'll go the other way right now. <laughs> <laughs> that was, yeah, there was a bit of uh, Region 5 gamesmanship for sure. Uh, Mitchell Heath, uh, who was on that team? Mitchell Heath was on our team, I remember. Uh, Chicky and Amar were my, my yep. co-coaches, which was really fun. That was a really, really fun experience. Uh, yeah, I really, I really remember that one fondly for sure. But Zane, you know, Zane, Zane went on to do some really fun things and it was a real you know, it was a real joy to, to coach my boys. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I, uh, I really love those days for sure. Now with you being such an accomplished player, was it ever difficult for you, uh, to maybe bring that up to your own kids? Cause like I said, like if Marquise can become somebody's dad, then I think at a certain point, kids don't really care what you've accomplished or what you've done. Right. So when you're explaining drills or tactics, or trying to talk to these guys, I'm sure it's tempting, but you probably didn't bring up your, your silver medal that often. So uh, I'm wondering how did you keep their attention or, or kind of, 
show them the way while still letting them experience and learn things on their own. Yeah, you know, it's so funny you say that because I think there was a moment when I tried to show my boys the TSN coverage of our match, uh, the silver medal match. And the only thing that they were preoccupied with was how short our shorts were. Like, that's all they cared about. They didn't care that dad actually made that dig in one, you know, against, you know, this future national team. It didn't matter. Like, it, it just, it just, I can't believe you wore those shorts. And and so um, to that point, um, you know, I think I've, you know, I think that kids and young people today don't, don't want to, hear the flex, like they just, they just want to hear you care about them and provide them with good information. And if you can throw in a good story, that's either distantly related to what you did, or you were in the gym when you saw someone do this, like, I think they gravitate towards those things. I, I just remember even just being in my teaching days that the storytelling of your lesson or the things they remember of things you got to experience um, I think that those are the things they held on to. There, there was no doubt that, you know, I was a converted middle player to setter in my third year of university. Like I went to university as a middle player. I hurt my shoulders. I had surgery. And it was my third year when John, after John Spicer left that we needed a setter. And I, and I sort of started doing it. And, you know, I, I developed that, that skill set under, kind of these weird conditions that no one would ever imagine today, but it was because of a supportive team and a great coach. And I think it just taught me about just how important the relationships are and how, you know, I still prided myself on doing stuff on the court too. So I would put myself out there. It was, it was not so much what I said, but could I show them a little bit and I still felt I had a little athleticism in me. And it just kind of was this, really just cool training environment where um, admittedly I was not as proficient as the Matt Harris's or the Brenda's, you know, when I think back to my own, like I definitely didn't have all of that going for me. I had enough, I think, to provide a combination of some really good foundational technical development with a passion for caring about my athletes that kind of just created the kind of environments that I think we ended up experiencing in a really cool way. And that's kind of what I look back really fondly on and and just the communities we built with every team that I got to coach. I just found getting the parents to buy in and feeling a sense of community just really kind of catapulted, you know, the success that our teams had. I think that was a real big feature. And it's kind of what I do professionally as well. That's kind of my you know what I go for. Yeah, so cool. And I wanted to pick your brain on this because uh, I think Cole maybe had an experience that we all envision where he played for the same club all the way up. And I know he switched to Durham Attack, but as you mentioned, he was younger than all the cats he was playing with. So maybe it was a natural transition where uh, Zane kind of got caught up in that that new era where he played for his club, but then he ended up switching to Titans and then he ended up switching to Lakeside. So it, when you're kind of faced with this decision, is that just something you do as a supportive parent being like, whatever you want to do, I'll, I'll support you. And if they need a coach, I'd love to coach you where it, it sounds like with your own upbringing, like you were a North York guy and you were kind of maybe going to Solars, but you were going to stay with your North York cats where now you've got the sun and, and we're club hopping because that's what the province is doing. Like, did you ever get caught off guard being like, I don't really like this? Or were you just full dad mode being like, Zane, I will drive you wherever you want to go. We're playing volleyball this year. 
Yeah, I think it was it was the latter to some extent. I think that he was had a desire to gravitate towards some new new experiences and all of those. I mean, it wasn't it was definitely not the plan to move around. We had such a great experience with Cole and growing up with the Grabowskis and Stephen was with us, you know, until he moved on to um, Rush, which was you know, a first time experience for me having an athlete leave me, which took some getting used to that was, that was challenging for sure. And I'm so proud of the, the success that he's found for sure. But um, I think we just found ourselves in situations where there were just for Zane's development and opportunities to me to take on some leadership as a coach. It just kind of fell into our hands to, to seek out new, new experiences. Um, the the middle experience was with you know the the move to Titans was one came out of the necessity of what was happening with the Stingers Club which we had been with for a year and the dissolution of that club um, Blair McIntosh at Scarborough Titans who I will always remember as this kind of amazing welcoming person because I reached out to him and said I've got these athletes I don't have anywhere to go and he said we don't have a boys team that old it's yours just. I'll give you space. And that was awesome. And then I think my most proud coaching experience was that 18U Lakeside team. When Lakeside found themselves with less athletes, uh, the Scarborough Titans team, Andrew Tahid went over to pa- uh, Pac-Man to play with them that year, 18U. I had four athletes that wanted to still play that were playing at a good level and wanted to be super competitive. They had someone, you know, Damon Dulat, you know, Dulat from Pac-Man. We, we, Garrett Markham and Bill Markham, who is one of my closest friends in volleyball that I coached, was a Niagara Rapids guy. Garrett drove in to Oakville for practices from St. Catharines. That team that came together that ultimately won a bronze medal at 18U Nationals was just a great experience of bringing young people together and, and then bonding. And a lot of those kids went on to play university, which was really awesome. So I'd say for Zane, I think it ended up working out. He went on to do some really good, you know, good things on the on the Canada Games team and had a great university career. And it, uh, but it wasn't the plan to bounce around that way for sure. Yeah, like like I said, it just seems like that's how business is being done. But there's always certain situations, and it's cool to hear the the behind the scenes, especially with that Lakeside team, about how basically a bunch of kids wanted to play and they all amalgamated it in one center there. So that that's very cool to hear and. Uh, Obviously, your playing and coaching career, we could spend a whole episode on that, but that would uh, not include Camp Madawaska, which I think is the favorite week of so many people in our community's lives or, or years, excuse me. So how did you first to get involved with this project and then eventually climb the ladder where you're a co-owner now? So it's an interesting, I, I never went to Madawaska. I was familiar with it. I was never, I was never a camper there. Um, but being in the camp business and having a lifelong relationship with Paul Brownstein's son, Norman, Paul, the founder of Madawaska um, in the early 2000s, was looking to expand a little bit into a sports experience with Madawaska, which has ultimately become our Madawaska all-sport camp. Uh, Paul reached out to me and my wife and asked if we'd be interested in developing a sports program. And um, as things would have it, the location of Madawaska is also the site of Camp Walden, the camp that I'm lucky enough to own with my business partner and my wife and his fa- and my business partner's family. 
And so we ended up, Madawaska was the rental site on the camp we ultimately owned first. And then Paul said, hey, would you consider getting involved with this? Knew I was a volleyball guy, knew I was a camp guy, and then offered us the opportunity to take over as he retired. And we were lucky enough to be able to maintain an incredibly strong leadership that Madawaska had with Keith Wasilek and Barry Mutry and Ian Ebbett. And we did that for several years and, and then have gone on. And it's now 20 years later and Madawaska celebrated his 50th. And that week is very special for me. I'm not hands-on involved in the volleyball program, but to get a chance every year to work with Dustin Reed and Matt Harris and Dave Gross and a whole bunch of people that I, that I've really come to respect in the volleyball community. And Pete Millsap runs that camp based in Collingwood. Um, it's just, it's just awesome. And we have such a, a wonderful following from all the hubs in Ontario that um, it kind of feels like a rite of passage now uh, to come to Madawaska for at least, you know, one summer as part of your volleyball development. And I think we do volleyball well, I think we do camp very well. And it becomes a magical week. And, and I am curious in your own words, uh, I, I know you mentioned you, you kind of stay behind the scenes as much as you can, but my experience there is when you're there, everybody loves it and you feel like you're contributing. But something I, I look back on now is obviously I, I couldn't continue going, obviously with my my job choice of being a beach volleyball coach, I just couldn't sacrifice the time. But right. everyone goes and they contribute and they love it. But the camp isn't bigger than anybody. We're like, I step away and things are still rolling. Uh, Keith Wozniak, who I love and contributed for so many years, finally he steps away and things are still rolling, right? Like nobody's bigger than camp, but when you're there, you feel like you're you're contributing and you are making a difference. So how do you how do you accomplish something that special where everyone feels a part of it, but we know that if we were to leave tomorrow, Madawaska is still going to be there and it's still going to be functional and still going to be a great place. There, there is such a, there's such a love for the place and the standard by which Paul and Shelley created that was carried on that there's an incredible sense of responsibility to make this experience even more than when you had the year before for new kids, et cetera, and for staff. And I think that's just really special. So I think it speaks to the people and just, just a real commitment to making it a, a just a really memorable, valuable week. Um, you know, it's so interesting, Josh. The one thing that I appreciate about Madawaska the most is that the volleyball community and the volleyball playing experience at the competitive level is intense. And these kids are battling it out every weekend, whether it's in Ottawa or on the beach in Coburg or whatever it is. But everyone sheds their colors when they come to Madawaska. It doesn't matter. There's nothing better than seeing a group of, you know, girls on the beach or boys on the court who represent six or seven different clubs and they battle it out at provincials two, three months earlier. And now they're walking with their arm around each other down to the waterfront or, you know, they're sharing a meal. Um, I just think that's one of the great things about our sport is this, you know, I think we feel an immense responsibility at Madawaska to, to, and I think our coaches respect it too. We got coaches who are, could easily use it as a recruiting venue, but that never happens. It, it, you know, and, and I think that, you know, it, it feels like it's just this, this place where we just say for the sake of the sport, uh, for the sake of an amazing, memorable experience, you know, we're going to leave all those elements of 
what we experience in volleyball at the door and let's just do our thing. I think that's what I'm most impressed and proud of, of the crew that oversees this program. Yeah. So, so cool to hear that. And, uh, just one other special project I had in my notes that I wanted to bring up is uh, the One Volleyball League. Uh, you were able to own and support the league through having a team, the Madawaska Mad Men. And just tell me what it meant to be a part of that project and contribute and just kind of, again, be at a high level, but also just kind of serving the volleyball community. Yeah, it was really special. I, I have so much respect for uh, Jackie and Jolanda for what they, they, they did and what they tried to do with getting people who kind of still wanted to play at a very high level and create this environment where you could feel really special about uh, playing the game still. I got kind of invited to be part of it through Daniel Shermer. And then, you know, uh, I found out that one of the teams didn't have an ownership group. And I looked at Cole, who wasn't playing and was in business school. And I said, hey, wouldn't this be a cool thing if we could do together? Like, I coached you, we worked together, maybe we should do this. And I'm really proud of Cole because he ended up starting Momentum with Michael Amoroso. He was one of the founders of Momentum when they went up to Wyerton and I think they discovered the pickets or told the world about the pickets or whatever. Because I remember Cole telling me there's some really talented kids up there. But Cole and I put our heads together. We had a lot of fun and I really enjoyed that experience. Um, I, I, I got to reconnect with John May who was another owner and, you know, sort of reconnect that friendship. And, and we tried to support the vision of one volleyball and through some trials and tribulations, we got through a couple seasons, John hosted that national final, which our team was lucky enough to qualify for. And we went to Edmonton for a weekend and we won quote, a professional volleyball championship in Canada, which I still am kind of proud of whatever that means, uh, but it was it was lots of fun and you know credit to to everyone who was part of that and and like a lot of things you know COVID you know ended up putting a real end to that experience. I think it had the potential for some other iteration, but COVID made it really terrible and we all got together and chatted about it. But it was a great experience. Aaron Nussbaum was ran a team. It was just so fun. It was great. Awesome. Awesome. Well, my friend, uh, I'm just looking at the clock and I've definitely taken a lot of your time. Uh, one tradition we built into the show is just to share a, a funny or unique moment that maybe you wouldn't have experienced without volleyball. So you've, you've shared some great stories already, but I was hoping you could give us one more before we let you go. Well, I have, two, I have actually one and a half stories that revolve around my dad, uh, to be honest with you, in volleyball, which is kind of speaks to our relationship a little bit too. My dad, I think I got my cues from my involvement in my kids' lives from my dad. Uh, just he wasn't a volleyball guy; he was a soccer guy. But in my second year at U of T, um, U of T and Dalhousie used to do an East Coast tour. We used to tour small towns in the Maritimes at the beginning of the season to promote volleyball. It was sponsored by Air Canada, if you believe it or not. And we used to Al Scott was the coach of Dalhousie back in the day, and those were, as I mentioned earlier, there's some great Dalhousie teams. So we would get in a van and we would a bus and we would travel these teams. And I remember one of the players, and escapes me, who there was one guy on the Dalhousie team who was from Charlottetown PEI. And one of our stops was to play in his high school in PEI. And I remember playing the game. The gym was packed. I was like, we're U of T Toronto guys, and we're leaving the gym. 
And there's a lineup of people who want our autographs in Charlottetown. And I, I relate this to my dad because my dad became like our handler because he would walk up and down the line and like get these, these, they, they had programs and my dad would collect programs from these guys and go up to Mark Dunn and say, Mark, that girl over there wants your autograph. Will you sign this and do this? So my dad ended up becoming my handler and our handler. And that was just a really funny experience that was never on our radar. These Toronto U of T volleyball people signing autographs after a match against Dalhousie. Like what's that about? <laughs> uh, so that, that was one. And then, you know, I think that I think of the support that I got growing up from my parents and my dad in my last university volleyball match, my dad was doing shift work and couldn't come to uh, Laval, Quebec City for my final, a silver medal match. And when he found out that we um, made it to the final, um, he took an overnight bus after his shift to watch me play my national final. And I think that has always served as kind of a reminder of kind of my attitude towards supporting my kids in sport and other things. But, you know, my dad, my dad couldn't tell uh, a 51 from a 61 to a footfall. Like he'd watch a game and just cheer for us blindly. Um, although he would say he understands the game now that Zane has finished his career. But back in those days, like I just remember, you know, volleyball, you know, was a real source of pride for our family. And I think my dad's example of just being, like my dad traveled with our team to Dalhousie. Oris said, of course, Moish is coming. And Oris and Moish would drink beers while we were, you know, warming up. I don't know what happened, but but those were just some things that I, that, you know, in, in, in thinking about a story, I just related to, you know, volleyball is a great family experience when it's done right. And I think parents who have their kids in the game, um, you know, I, I hope I hope a lot of kids appreciate all the all the things that their parents do for them to put them in this great game. That's amazing, Howie. Thank you so much for for coming on and sharing all that you did. Uh, a little late coming. I'm glad we could finally connect and get you on the show. This has been this has been amazing. So yes, thanks again, and hopefully the listeners got a kick out of this one. I, I definitely learned a lot. Thank you, Josh. It's been really nice to to walk down memory lane with you. I really appreciate it. <laughs>